0: everybody? Good, good. Glad you guys are here. So uh, we've been working through the book of Matthew. We took a break from Matthew last week and did um, one of our baptism services that we'll do for this year. And I want to tell you guys, last week, last weekend, uh, we baptized 87. is how many people we baptized. Yeah, which is great. And we actually had a couple more get baptized last night. So I don't know how many. It ended up being close to 90, I guess, in the last week. So that's Really, really good. That's something to be um, excited about. If you were here last week and you've never been here before, and you're coming again this week, we're back into what we normally do. We take whole books of the Bible, work through them line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, all the way through. And we're in a book right now that, that I could make an argument that it's probably, make a pretty strong argument. I think it's probably the most important book of the Bible. It's kind of the book of the Bible where the whole narrative of the Bible kind of hinges on. And uh, it's the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's mostly about Jesus, his, his, not just his birth, but mostly his three years, three and a half years of ministry and leading up uh, a group of individuals that he was going to send out to the entire world. And we did chapter four two weeks ago, and here's what we talked about in chapter four, kind of three things. And it was not, not three levels, but maybe three stages that people are in in their walk, and the first one was, as we talked about how Jesus came to proclaim, to make a proclamation. And that's, that's like, so there's a big crowd in here now, that's like when you would get in front of a large crowd and you would say the truth, right? Or you would, you would proclaim some kind of good news to everyone, that's what Jesus was doing. And from that, you're going to have people that don't accept it, or you might actually have people that accept it and want to know more. And that leads us to kind of the next stage, So the first one was proclamation, the second one was going deeper into the teachings of Christ, right? So they heard the invitation, they accepted the invitation, and then they started to go deeper. And then the third thing we kind of talked about a couple of weeks ago is that when we have a relationship with Jesus, we experience healing. Now that's not always physical healing, even though God is capable of that. There's spiritual healing, there's emotional healing, there's relational healing, there's mental healing, all these different facets that God can touch our lives and do stuff different with us. So we talked a little bit about healing at the end of chapter four. Now we're getting into probably the most famous part of the book of Matthew. So if the book of Matthew is one of the most important books of the Bible, chapters five, six, and seven may be the most important chapters of that book. Very, very important. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to take it really, really slow. And the reason why is the next three chapters are virtually all, if you have a Bible that has red letters which indicates Jesus speaking, it's almost all red letters. So virtually everything I'm gonna read to you today is straight from the mouth of God. And so we're gonna really break it down and spend a lot of time with it. And here's what we're gonna talk about today. It sounds super encouraging and happy, uh, that you're not good enough and you're all going to fail. So I promise that I'm gonna turn that in a way to where you're gonna like that phrase and not feel super bad about that phrase, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's where we're gonna end up today. So, um, okay. You should've got a notes handout if you walked through any of the doors. I, if you didn't go through the doors, I don't know how you got in here, but um, <laughs> through any of the main doors, you should've got a notes handout and that has everything I'm gonna say come through the ceiling. Or um, you should've got a notes handout with everything I'm gonna say in it. Everything should be on the screens around the room, wherever you're sitting, you should be able to see a screen. If you have a smartphone, everything is on the Experience Community app, all the, ser- uh, all the uh, sermon notes and all the scripture. And if you have a physical copy of the Bible, we're in the New Testament, book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and we're in chapter five, okay? We're only going to do half of it today because there's a lot there, okay? But I, I, I think you're going to learn a lot from it. Really, really good stuff, okay? All right, so I'm going to pray, and um, we'll jump into this, and we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Father, Lord, I just want to thank you. Lord, thank you, God, for everyone who came out this morning. Um, Thank you, Lord, that people would come and they'd be willing to give up a a couple of hours of their time, God, to worship and to hear the word and be with other brothers and sisters, God, and we just thank you for that, Lord. So I pray that you bless our church. God, not just our church, we pray that you bless all the churches that we work with uh, in other states and other countries, and we pray for every single church in our city, God, that you bless them. And we pray, Lord, that everything we do today, that it honors you and brings you glory, God. And, uh, Lord, we also pray for the great nonprofits that we work with and uh, specifically special kids that we're working with this month, God, that you'd keep your hand on what they do, Lord. God, we love you. Be with us as we study your word today. And, um, Lord, just teach us something new, Lord. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read little chunks and break it down. I'm just going to read one verse. It's going to go real quick here at the beginning, and uh, we'll break that down, okay? Matthew writes this. He says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Very, very short. So the crowds. So the more Jesus traveled and spoke, the more people came out to hear him speak. The crowd started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And though Jesus taught a lot of people, he taught big crowds, right? This is a pretty good sized crowd. He would teach crowds. He would also teach people on an individual level. But his main focus was the 12 guys that traveled along with him. Most of his focus. And he would slip away from the crowds. He would take his 12 disciples and they would get alone somewhere and he would try to teach them. Now, what would typically happen is somebody would see him slip away, right? Hiding in the bushes, thinking, oh, there, there's Jesus over there. The crowds would kind of catch up with him. And so in chapter five, it probably began with his 12. And then as he went on, the crowd started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's probably what's happening in chapter five. So Matthew's gospel has been called discipleship training because the main emphasis that Jesus gives in Matthew is training up his followers, and so it's become a book that's been kind of given that title, Discipleship Training. Now, the masses of people were drawn to Jesus' teachings, but it was only the disciples, not just the 12, but people that followed him, that were willing to get deeper into the teachings and to submit to those teachings. So what that means, it's the same for us today. Listen, people are always drawn to a feel-good message. They're always drawn to a message of love and hope and and peace and compassion and benevolence. People are always drawn to that. The trick is, is when we get into that message of love and hope and peace and benevolence and all these things, when we get into the Word of God, we find out that to get those things takes submission. To get those things takes hard work in a relationship. And when it comes to the hard work And the submission and the not super fluffy parts of this book, that's when people abort Christianity. I just wanted to feel good, right? And now Jesus is asking me to change the way I live. I don't want that. I just want to feel good. I just want to experience love, right? And so a lot of people step out of the faith when they find out that it's a little bit deeper than just feeling good all the time. So there were three groups of people that were always around Jesus. I just talked about one of them, right, the twelve. And so again, the majority of the book of Matthew is this emphasis on Jesus and his 12 to train them. Now what Jesus was doing for us is he was teaching us that one person cannot do it all. Now I know he's God, but for 33 and a half years, he was a man on earth and one person could not go out and talk to everyone. It couldn't happen. So what Jesus did is he looked at his disciples later on in the gospel, And he says, you guys are going to do greater things than even I am going to do. Now, a lot of people misinterpret that, and they think that means miracles, and that's not possible. There's a lot of very hyper-charismatic churches that say, we're going to do greater things than Jesus. Not true in the sense of miracles. Now, I'll tell you why. Jesus did the greatest miracle that will ever happen. He was murdered, buried for three days, resurrected himself, and saved humanity because of it. You're not going to top that, quite frankly. So Jesus had to mean something else. What he meant was he was just going to be in a very small geographical area talking to people. But he was going to train his followers to go out to the entire globe. You will do greater things than me geographically is what he meant. So the first group of people was the 12. The second group of people were the other disciples. These are the men and women that followed Jesus, but they weren't the 12. They weren't the leaders. We talked about them briefly, actually, last week during the baptism lesson in Acts chapter 2. The 120 people that were filled with the Holy Spirit when the church was born, that are, those are all disciples of Jesus, but it's not all the 12, right? It's more than that. So these are the people that follow Jesus, but not the leadership. And then there was, of course, the crowds. These were people who were watching from a distance. They were keeping kind of an emotional distance and maybe even a a geographical distance from Jesus because they were cautious, they were critical. Some of them believed, but they were just kind of still gaining more information. Some of them obviously didn't believe, but they wanted to kind of see nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd, right? So they're all around him, different levels of belief and unbelief. But what Jesus was looking for amongst all these people was people who wanted to learn people who were teachable searchers of the truth. So again, everyone is looking for happiness. Everyone on planet Earth is looking for happiness, but Jesus wanted to bring something deeper than happiness, deeper than just feeling good, because happiness is contingent on your circumstances. Jesus wanted to present something that wasn't contingent on your circumstances, joy, contentment, fulfillment, purpose, who we are in God's kingdom. And that is not contingent on what we have or don't have in this world. It's contingent on if we have him and him alone. So it wasn't just about being happy. It was much deeper than that. It was having purpose and contentment and joy. And that is still what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking for the people who want to dig deeper They want to find out what their purpose is, what the meaning of this life is, what their connection to their creator is, not just a fleeting feeling, but something very, very deep. Jesus is still looking for that today, all right? So we got all that from one verse. So we'll get you guys out of here about four o'clock this evening. So here we go. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So guys, this is the king's manifesto. These are the overarching principles of the entire kingdom of God. These are also the same principles that the religious establishment will, will push away from and reject. Now, listen, if you hop, shop at Hobby Lobby, I'm not making fun of you here. That's not what I'm trying to do. But here's what we often do in Christianity. We take these very monumental, life-changing, soul-saving phrases from the Bible, and we turn them into something cute that we put over our coffee nook, right? Right? And what we do is like we get up, you know, like and we, we position our notebook and our bagel and our pad of paper and we put some like catchy phrase that it probably took us 45 minutes to write out that thing right there on your Bible. We take a picture and post it on Instagram so everyone will think we're great Christians. And what we've done is we've reduced these monumental principles of the kingdom of God into some kind of like catchy cheap thing that you can go buy at a store and hang up somewhere in your house. And there's nothing wrong with us having things in our house. There's nothing wrong with I guess there's nothing wrong with the bagel pictures on Instagram or any of that stuff. But we need to be careful. These are not just cute cuddly phrases. These are the principles that demand application in our lives because they are the principles of the kingdom. These are the overarching fundamental beliefs of God himself. And we need to take that very very seriously. It's okay to have this thing written on your mirror when you wake up, but you better fully understand the weight of these phrases, right? So let's go into them. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that if we're broke, that God loves us more that we're blessed. It's not talking about monetary poverty. It's talking about spiritual poverty, What that simply means is this. Jesus is saying, blessed are those that realize they are spiritually bankrupt if they don't have me. Blessed are those that realize that without a relationship with God, we're nothing. There's no goodness in us. We cannot be good in and of ourselves. Blessed are those that recognize they need God. That's what he's saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, Corey, I'm often sad, that means I'm blessed. That's not what that means either. What that means is when we acknowledge that we have sinned, that should break our hearts that we have offended God. That when we have done something against him and we realize that, if we're living a certain way and then we read the Bible and we find out God doesn't like that, We should step back and that should break our heart. We should mourn. And we're blessed when when we mourn because that's gonna cause us to turn away from our sin and now focus on our Savior. Do you know what the problem is in our culture though right now and a lot of it in Christian culture is we're not running after righteousness, we're running after self-righteousness. What that means is this. Oftentimes when we realize we are sin, and most of the times we kind of know we're sinning, but what we do to justify that is we say, well, this guy over here is doing something worse than me. That's not righteousness, that's self-righteousness. I remember talking to a young lady one time years ago, she left our church over it, but she was in my office and she had just gotten baptized and she's telling me how great it was and she feels so good and everything's awesome and and she says, yeah, you know, I'm sleeping with my, she did say, I'm living with my boyfriend, which tells me you're sleeping together, but I'm living with my boyfriend and, and we woke up and we we're having coffee the other day and we we're just talking about how good God is. And I'm like, hold on a second. Let me, let me pause you there for a second. You know that sex before marriage is a sin, correct? That outside of that, that union, you're, you're not supposed to be having sexual relations. And she goes, oh, Corey, everyone has something. And I said, no, 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 no. We're not talking about everyone. We're talking about you the one that stood in front of a crowd and professed that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and that you're gonna follow him. I can show you in the word where what you're doing is wrong and you're not allowed to skirt that. We're not talking about your neighbor. We're not talking about the girl down the street. We're we're talking about you right now. So the question is, do we care about righteousness or self-righteousness? And so do we hate sin so much that when we realize that we're committing it, it breaks our heart and we mourn about that? God says, blessed are those who mourn when they realize those things. Jesus also says, blessed are the humble. Now, humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is not talking bad about yourself or, I'm so awful. That's actually a false sense of humility. Humility is understanding who you are. It's having a realistic view of yourself. And we are blessed when we submit to God and we understand our place in God's kingdom. But if we do have authority, if we do have influence or affluence, In this world, humility is is not rejecting that power or not using that power, but using it in the right way, learning how to control our influence and our affluence and our power. And so again, we live in a culture now that one of our biggest Achilles heels right now is we just think way too much about ourselves, don't we? Get on people's Facebook pages, right, or their Instagram when it has like the description of who they are. I always get a kick out of these, right? We should just make a book of these, And so people write on there. There's like, you know, here's I'm Corey Trimble, world traveler, entrepreneur, game changer, visionary, and like you've never been past Lexington, Kentucky, and you've never had you know a 40-hour work week, but but, and you own an Etsy store. That doesn't make you an entrepreneur. So like, sorry if you're from Kentucky or own an Etsy store. I didn't mean that bad. I'm sorry. But but the point is, is we think way too much about ourselves. We're not very humble. Jesus says, blessed are those who are humble and those people will inherit the earth. Now, I don't have time to get into that, but if you get into Revelation chapter 20, the millennial reign, you can go, you can go down the rabbit hole of Revelation by yourself this week, uh, but read Revelation chapter 20 and that's what that's referring to. So the first three principles lay a foundation. Basically, the first three Beatitudes tell us as believers how we should respond to Jesus. We should acknowledge our sin, We should feel remorse for committing that sin, and we should humble ourselves and let God change us. That's how we start off. That's what the foundation is that Jesus just laid. And if we will do those things, it shows that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. What that means is this. It refers to people who have the desire to do what God wants them to do, not what the world wants them to do. That they have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, What that means is we have to place our feelings aside and adopt God's feelings on whatever the matter is, how we live, what we do, how do we talk to people, how we work, how we raise our kids, how we're a spouse, whatever. Well, Corey, I feel like this. Well, your feelings can be very deceptive. Feelings are wonderful servants, but horrible masters. We're not to follow those feelings, We're to follow the Holy Spirit that is in us because the Bible says our heart can be deceptive. Above all other things, our heart can be deceptive. So we need to read the word of God and we need to replace our feelings for God's feelings on certain matters. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it is that hunger for righteousness that eventually changes our heart. The transformation of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness go to the next set of Beatitudes, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. What happens is, is when we understand our own sin and we understand how how God has shown us mercy, we start to show that mercy to people around us. When we replace our desires for God's desires, not our goodness, because we don't have any, but when we allow his goodness in, that's when we start to have a pure heart from God's grace. And the peace is an internal peace. This doesn't mean politicians that keep us out of war. That's not the kind of peace Jesus is talking about right here. Do you know what Jesus does? Jesus asks us to go a little bit deeper. So what we tend to do is we tend to look around and we say, we need world peace. We need, look at all this evil in the world. Look at all these bad things. And what Jesus says is he goes, no, 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 don't look at them. Let's talk about the evil inside of you. Well, we need world peace. Jesus says, let's talk about the peace inside of you. Do you have it? There will never be a world peace until we have an internal, personal, individual peace. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. That means blessed are the ones that let the prince of peace inside their own hearts. Blessed are the ones that have peace inside themselves, not the ones that stop war. That will come later, but it starts at the heart. That's what it means. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Verse 10 through 12 talk about the reward for following Jesus, the reward for those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, look at what that says there. It doesn't say that just because you're persecuted, you get to go to heaven. This sounds insensitive, and I don't mean for it to be, but just because we've been dealt a bad hand in this life does not grant us an eternity with Jesus. The only thing that grants us an eternity with Jesus is a relationship with Jesus. And so a lot of people say, oh, man, my, life's, my my life's been rough. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but that's why we lean on Jesus Christ. And so the only way that we inherit the kingdom of God is to have a relationship with him, to pursue him, to suffer for him. Now that doesn't mean we go looking for suffering. Doesn't mean we find like the most hostile areas to Christianity and walk around with a big, you know, cross on our shirt, you know, like with a bullhorn telling everyone how they're going to go to hell. We're not we're not supposed to go looking for persecution but we're blessed because, guys, quite frankly, persecution is going to find us. So our ultimate reward is not here. Jesus said, be glad, rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. Jesus doesn't necessarily promise us an amazing reward in this life. Now, guys, we are blessed. Sometimes we're too entitled or busy or distracted to recognize how blessed we are, but we're blessed, guys. The fact that we can do what we're doing right now is is a blessing. But we need to understand as Christians that our ultimate blessing, we're not gonna realize how much the seeds that we've planted in this life have produced until the life to come. That's when we're gonna realize that God has really honored all of the things that we have done. But here's where we struggle. We become so entitled. Sometimes we become a little lazy. Sometimes we become impatient. And because we want all of our blessings now, we get discouraged. When Jesus said, I don't promise you all your blessings now, I promise you all your blessings in the life to come. Okay? Everyone still with me? (laughs) You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I love this part. So Jesus actually hasn't gotten into his sermon yet. He's still talking more than likely to his 12. Now what he's doing is he's looking at his 12, and he's saying, look, guys, You guys are going to have a monumental impact on the world around you. You are going to, if you will follow me, you're going to change a lot of people's lives. Now, listen, we need to be careful with this. I don't know if anyone else in the room does this. I'm a fixer by nature. If someone comes to me with a problem, I'm like, let's get on a whiteboard and write out action steps and let's fix this, right? But do you know what I've had to learn over the years? I'm not Jesus, I can show people the word of God. I can pray for them. I can be for them, be, be there for them to the best of my abilities, but I'm not Jesus. And you need to know that too. You're not Jesus. We cannot save anybody. Our job though, and what Jesus asked his followers and us today to do though, is to connect the non-believer to God. That we're to be the catalyst for the world to change, not because we can change it, but we are the ones that connect the one who can change people's hearts to the ones who need heart change. And Jesus says, you are the salt, you are the light. What in the world does that mean? To be the salt, now let's talk about what salt does and what it did in Jesus's time. Salt was a preservative against contaminants. You would put salt on food in a time when they didn't have refrigerators and freezers, right? Right? and it would protect the food from becoming contaminated. In Jesus's time, if a community didn't have access to salt, people would literally get sick and die. So not only was salt a protector, a preserver, salt was also the thing that gave food its flavor. It made it taste better. So what does that mean for us? It means that as Christians, We are to educate other people about the contaminants that can get into the soul and spiritually kill them. We are to be the ones to present to them the thing that protects them from outside forces that can ruin their life and wreck their soul. We are the salt. Not only are we to be the salt that is is a preservative, we are also to be a source of creativity and excellence. Listen. Christians should make culture better. They should make life better for those around them. I get on a soapbox with this because we are failing on epic proportions with this right now, right? The best Christianity can do right now when it comes to the arts is like, God's not dead 12 or whatever we're on now, right? That's like the best we can produce. Well, I just offended someone, didn't I? But let's just be frank, guys, let's be honest. We don't produce the best music, we don't write the best movies, we don't make the best art, we're not leading in the marketplace, we're not the best scientists, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. The first thing in the Bible that you learn that God is, is a creator, an artist. And once upon a time, the greatest musicians in the world, the greatest scientists in the world, the greatest, greatest artists in the world, were all believers in God. What has happened to us? We have the most creative force in the universe living inside of us and the best we can do is God's not dead part 12, right? That's a problem with us. Not only that, listen, Christian businesses, I'm not saying businesses that do Christian things, businesses owned by Christians should be the most efficient, excellent businesses in the entire marketplace. We should be the hardest workers, we should be the best at what we do. We should be the ones working the hardest at MTSU and at our schools because the source of all creativity, the source of salt, is in us, right? Moving on. Okay, I'm so sorry. So what does it mean to be the light? Well, to be the light is to be similar to the salt. It means that if, if we're Christians and we have the light in us, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyways, but if, if, we, if we have that light in us, that we're to be a good example, a good influence to the people around us. The function of light is to make truth and reality more visible. It's to illuminate what is real. Light offers guidance. Light offers direction. But to be the light, we must be connected to the light, right? If we're to be a source of light, it means we have to pray, it means if we're gonna connect people to words, they're gonna change their life. We better be reading this thing. It means that we need to be a part of a church community. This is important what we do right now because it is discouraging out there. And when we get together, we encourage ourselves, right? We lift each other up, we edify each other. If we're gonna be the light, we have to be connected to the light. So we're to model this. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says you don't light a light and then cover it up with a blanket, Right? You don't turn on a flashlight and like hold it under your shirt. No, you, you use it to see things. So Jesus says, don't cover that light up. Put it somewhere where it illuminates the entire house. What does that mean? It means that wherever we go, wherever we work, whatever we do, do it with integrity. Do it with honesty. Do it with clarity. Work hard and work your best. Love other people and show them respect and care. And also don't shy away from your faith and the responsibilities of your faith. Well, Corey, I don't wanna offend everyone. Everyone's already offended, right? Jump on that PC bandwagon and just tell people that you love Jesus, right? You're gonna offend people regardless of what you do. That doesn't mean that you walk into Starbucks with a KJV and just start beating people to death with it, right? That's not what we do. But build relationships with people, get to know people, invest in people, and pray that God naturally opens up the door for you to share your faith, and I guarantee you he will. But here's the thing, guys. We can feed all the people in this county. We can love all the people in jails. We can know everyone at every coffee store we go to and everything else. If we love people but never share with them the most important information they can ever hear, we are not loving them the way that we should. Right? Okay, I feel like I'm just like yelling at the wall today. I'm so sorry, guys. Let me keep going. So Jesus is all about the state of the heart. We're called to go out and do good things, not so people can say we're good, but so they can say God is good. Later on, Jesus even says, don't go out and do good things so everyone's gonna think you're amazing. He even says that you'll get a reward, which means people will think you're great, but you're not gonna get a reward from me. So we're to go out and do good things not because we wanna look better, but because we truly love God and we truly love others. What that means is this. Guys, we must constantly be taking an inventory of our own heart because listen, we can do the right things for the wrong reasons and eventually that facade is gonna fall apart. We can put all the bumper stickers on the car. We can come to church you know, nine times a week. We can do all this stuff and we can post it all on Facebook every time we tip well. Look, look how good I am. We can do all these things. But if our heart is not in the right place, eventually that facade is gonna break down, right? Because it becomes self-serving, it becomes corrupted, and we have to take an inventory. Next part. This is where it gets a little deep. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or even one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That's interesting. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's essentially talking about the Old Testament. Now, to the religious leaders in Jesus' time, when Jesus started teaching, they would have thought he was the antithesis of the Old Testament rules and laws. But Jesus was not the antithesis. He, He wrote those laws. He came to be the perfect example of how to live out the law, not to oppose it, but to fulfill it. Now, when I say law, let me clarify. We're going to focus on the Mosaic law, which is the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20. We're not talking about the Levitical law. You're like, oh, thank God I can eat shrimp, right? So, like, there's all these different laws that that have passed away because the Levitical uh, order has passed away. Things like can't trim your beard a certain way, can't blend cotton, can't get tattoos, can't eat shrimp, things like that, right? Those things have passed away. That's not the law we're talking about. We're talking about the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, now, the law, the Ten Commandments, cannot save you. <laughs> they can only define what we should and shouldn't do. They can define sin, not save us. Even if we could keep all of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus tells us we cannot, it is only by God's grace that any of us are saved, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna, this is going to build on each other. So Jesus came to clarify what humanity had convoluted. God gave us 10 very simple commands, right? Exodus chapter 20, 10 very simple. It doesn't take a a rocket scientist to understand the 10 commandments. So he came and he said, I didn't come to abolish those. I came to bring clarity to what the intention of those laws were. But humanity had taken those 10 commands and by the time Jesus came onto the scene, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1,500 amendments to the 10 commandments. So humanity had taken 10 simple things and made it really, really complicated. So Jesus came to fulfill the law by teaching its real intentions and by perfectly keeping the law. He came, he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, and he also provided the means of salvation, which means Jesus died on the cross and paid for all of our sin, okay? Jesus also came... (laughs) to teach us something that was impossible to do without his help, following the Ten Commandments. Here's where we're going to go from here on out. What we tend to do is we think we need to fix everything on the outside, and then eventually our heart will change. And Jesus says, you've got it backwards. We need to start with your heart, and from your heart, everything externally will change. So what we do is we, we like rules. I know we, we say we don't like rules, but really we do. We like things to be written out so we can make the checklist. Okay, I went to church. I gave my check this week. Uh, I'm in a small group. I, I help people once a month doing this. Okay, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, look, we're not talking about these external standards because our identity as a follower of God starts from here and works its way outward. So we can only honor the rules. We can only honor the law when we have a relationship with the author of the law, when we have a relationship and we're receiving the grace of God in our lives. I'll I'll keep going. So what this means is this. Righteousness or goodness only comes when we depend on his righteousness and goodness because we don't have any. So the only way we can be good is if we live in his goodness. Now, that doesn't mean that works don't matter. Works do matter. James even said that faith without works is dead. But our works only have value when we depend on God's grace and when we depend on God. So God is not asking you to be perfect. God is not asking anyone in this room to be perfect. He knows we're not going to be. What God is asking us is to be dependent. Don't be perfect. Be dependent. Lean on me, because even at our very best, we will fall flat if we do not have God in every facet of our lives. The only way to be righteous is to have God's righteousness in us, to have a relationship, to have his Holy Spirit with us. And so Jesus said the law is going to stand. It's there. It's going to stand until heaven and earth pass away. So whenever I hear Christians say, man, Jesus abolished the law. No, he didn't. He just said right there, he came to fulfill it, not wipe it away. And he said it's not to be tampered with. Not even one stroke of one letter should be tampered with. So what does that mean for us today? What it means is this. (laughs) We are incapable of hitting the target. But what the Ten Commandments do is at least it gives us something to aim for. What the Ten Commandments do, right? Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not bear false witness, that means gossip, Thou, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, all these different things, right? Honor your father and your mother, all these different things. They define what is right and wrong. And the trick for us is, is though we are incapable of always achieving those things, at least we know God's expectations and it highlights how dependent we must be on God. The only way I'm gonna hit that target is if God guides my arrow. I do my best to hit it, but I'm incapable. So I have to lean on God to help me hit the mark. That's what Jesus is saying. You're incapable of doing this life on your own. You're incapable of being good and righteous. You're incapable of having a healthy relationship with God unless I help you. That's what Jesus was saying. And then here's what Jesus does, guys. He always asks us to go deeper, 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 deeper. That's what he says to us. And he looks at his followers and he says, you guys have to be more righteous than the religious leaders. Do you know what he's saying? In their culture, the religious leaders, they wore the right clothes, They did all the right ceremonies. They got to go to certain parts of the temple that no one else could go to. It was impossible, listen, listen. It was impossible to be more religious than the religious people. But Jesus said, I don't want you to be religious. I want you to be relational. I don't want you to try to do all these external religious practices. The way that you're gonna become more righteous than the religious people is They think that wearing the right clothes and getting the right Christian tattoo and all the bumper stickers and going to church and making sure everyone sees you in your nice suit, they think that all the religious practice makes them good. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It is your heart. It is something deeper. It's not the what. Jesus wants us to think about the why before we even try to accomplish the what. So Jesus is saying, don't be religious. Have a relationship with me. That's what Jesus was encouraging his disciples to do. It starts here, and then it starts to penetrate and activate and change how we do everything. Do you know what that means in our modern-day vernacular? You can come to church every single week. You can give millions of dollars to the church, which you're welcome to do. You can do all those things. (laughs) But just because you do those things doesn't make you good. It is only your relationship with Jesus Christ that we can be righteous, that we can be holy. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. Well, I go to church, why? Why do you go to church? Because it's good for business? Because everyone thinks you're a good person? Because it somehow alleviates this guilt you feel for living like hell the other six days of the week? Why are you here? It's not just what you're doing, it's why we do it. And Jesus wants to get to the core of us. Not just how we look, not just what we drive, not just in the neighborhoods we live in. Who are you in God? He wants to cut to the core of our hearts. Why? 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 Well, God, I feed all these people. God, I do all these things. God, I've done all these things. And it says later on in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is gonna look at some people and say, we didn't have a relationship. I don't know you, I don't know you. It's why, it's deeper than just what. What Jesus came to do, almost the whole of the entire book of Matthew is the contrast between a pseudo-righteousness and a true righteousness. Religious practice versus a relationship with your creator. What does this mean? It means that what we do is irrelevant if why we do it is not for the love of God and people. We can fix world hunger right now, but if we're only doing it for us, it's just garbage. It's not doing what the God, what God wants us to do. If it's not for a love of him and a love of other people, why we do things, it matters. So our salvation is contingent on the condition of our heart the state of our heart in relationship to God. Because guys, apart from Jesus, we're no good. Whenever people tell you just look inside yourself, man, if you look inside yourself, you're gonna see some ugly stuff in there. That's why we invite the light in. It's a bunch of darkness if we don't have Jesus in us. So whenever people say look inside yourself, yeah, do that. You're gonna find a lot of pain, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of ugliness in there. That's why we don't look to ourselves for the answers. We look to Jesus for those answers because all on, our, on our own, apart from him, we're never good enough, regardless of religious practice. That being said, though, what we do does matter. It's not just our intentions, right? I appreciate good intentions. Well, Corey, I didn't intend on cheating on my wife, but you still cheated on her. It's still wrong. I'm glad you didn't have the intentions to do it. But, but you did, and so what we do does matter, but our actions flow from a heart change. We don't do actions and then expect the heart to change. We let God change our heart, and then he changes the way we think and act. That's actually the definition of repentance. And so we often get it backwards. And listen, guys, rules are not bad. Well, God doesn't have rules. Love doesn't have rules, Corey. 1 Corinthians 13 are the rules of love. (laughs) Love does not envy, it does not boast, it isn't isn't proud, it isn't self-serving. Love is slow to anger. Yes, the Bible defines the rules of love. God didn't come to eradicate laws or rules. In fact, Jesus Christ came to educate us on the value of knowing what lane we should be in. Because those laws protect us. The laws of God keep us on the right path. They define what is evil and what is good. But what we tend to do is we go to these extremes, don't we? Well, Corey is just all about love. God is love. Love is love. I love love. Love love love. Right? There's no rules, and so we go to this extreme, right, to where it's all good because Jesus is just this hippie in the sky that drinks tea and wants to hug us all the time. That's that's all he is, right? Or we go to the other extreme that we become those people that go back into the book of Leviticus and go, wait a second, is that polyester and cotton blend? It's wrong. Got a tattoo, Leviticus 19. I love it when people bring that up and I'm like, you trim your beard, right? Leviticus 19. So anyways. (laughs) We can go to these different extremes. But what the 10 Commandments do is they define sin for us. They show us the target but it is God that enables us to hit the target. It is God that does that. Do you wanna know Corey's definition of grace? It's so stupid, but I'm gonna tell it to you anyways. That God holds up a target for me, right? Here, Corey, take a shot. That I do my best to hit that thing, but I I might hit it at the very bottom. I may hit it way up top, but I'm nowhere near the bullseye. And so what Jesus does is he says, hey, Corey, look over there. Takes out the arrow, puts it in the middle. Good shot, Corey, good try, right? That's grace. I can't hit that thing but with God's help, with his benevolence, with his love, we are able to be what God wants us to be. The law defines the target, but it is only by God's grace that we ever hit that target. It is only by God's grace that we hit that target. So we should do our best. Guys, you need to know the 10 Commandments. You need to go to Exodus chapter 20 tonight, and you need to read over the 10 Commandments, and you need to know those. And listen, we need to live a life that does our best to honor those 10 Commandments. But I hate to break it to you guys, sometimes we're gonna fail. Jesus, man, he really lays it on us later in the Gospel of Matthew. Whenever we read the 10 Commandments, you may read those tonight and be like, I do these things, right? But Jesus looked at us and said, you say you've never killed anyone, but if you have ever hated anyone in your heart, it's as bad as murder. Uh Uh-oh. You can say, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever lusted after someone else, you've committed adultery. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh, maybe I don't do these things as well as I thought I did. But here's the thing, guys. We are to work our hardest. We are to do our best to honor the 10 commandments and shoot towards those things, but also knowing that we're never gonna be able to fully uphold them. In other words, our righteousness can only come from a dependence on God's righteousness. So let's just be honest with each other for a minute. (laughs) If I was a motivational speaker, I would make all of us stand up and stretch and take a deep breath and just say, we are failures, right? (laughs) Because I think some of you need to understand, you're not gonna be perfect. You're gonna fail, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna slip up. Man, the Bible says that King David was a man after God's own heart. That guy did terrible things. But the point is this, is when we do fail, which you're going to, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When you fail, the response shouldn't be to make excuses. It shouldn't be to say, well, Corey said we were going to fail, so, you know, whatever. It shouldn't be to point at our neighbor and say, well, they're worse than me. That's self-righteousness. When we mess up, we need to go back to Jesus Christ. And we need to say, God, forgive me. Because remember, blessed are those who mourn. When we realize the sin in our life, it should upset us. And we should go back to Jesus. Listen, not you don't have to like grovel and, and, and beg for weeks and hit yourself with a whip to somehow get God's forgiveness. if we genuinely regret the decision we've made and we go to him and say, "Father, forgive me," He says, "It's forgiven. It's gone." And Jesus will never hold that against us again. But we've got to keep repenting. We've got to keep going back to the cross. We've got to keep leaning into the grace and goodness of God but keep trying to hit that target. Keep trying to live to where God wants us to live. And with Jesus's help, we can be righteous, but we're all gonna fail. We're also not good enough. I hate to break it to you. There was a a, a buddy of mine that came up to get baptized last week. Great guy. I I consider him a pretty good friend. I I really love him. He's got a great personality. And he came up and and he and his whole family were up there and, and he's just bawling, man. I mean, just weeping. I looked at him and I was like, man, what? what you, this is a great thing. Like, what, what's wrong? You seem so upset. And he just said, Corey, I just don't feel worthy. I said, well, you're not. <laughs> None of us are, right? But I said, that's a reason for celebration. The fact that we're not good enough, but Jesus loves us so much that he would die on a cross. That's how fantastic our God is. That listen, our salvation is not contingent on our works. Our salvation is contingent on his work. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of Jesus Christ and salvation. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. But even while we were still sinners, Paul writes, Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for us. And he sees us as invaluable. Are we worthy? Heck no. But that's what makes God the beautiful thing that he is is he sees how unworthy we are and he says, I love them and I love them so much. I'm gonna send my only son to die for them and resurrect and then fill them with our Holy Spirit. That's how much he loves us and he wants us anyways. Not just that, one day, because the Bible says all of us will one day stand in judgment and when we walk up there, and I don't know if we'll know it or not, but I think we will, that we have not done enough to earn heaven. But what's beautiful is Jesus is going to stand in front of each and every one of us that follow him, and he's going to say, I can vouch for them. And we're going to get in. That's how much God loves us. Are we going to fail? Yeah, you're going to fail. Are you good enough? No, you're not good enough. But Jesus is. And he loves you more than anything he has ever created. And that is good news. That is good news. Do you bow your heads with me, please? If your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I don't know who needs to hear it in here. I don't care what you have done. I don't care how evil you've been. And there are some of you in this room, I bet you have some, some really evil stuff harbored in your heart. Maybe no one knows about except for you. Listen, I don't care. I'm gonna say this and I hope you hear it correctly. God doesn't care. Of course he cares what you do. But I think what some of you in this room need to hear is God is saying, if you will just be humble and if you'll just ask for my help, I will forgive you, I will pick you up, I will dust you off, and we'll get you back on track. But we've just got to trust that God loves us to where he already knows the ugliness in our heart. But we have to confess those things to him. We have to repent. And if we will just do that, guys, not only does God forgive, he will never hold it against you again. The Bible says that when we ask for forgiveness, it says that our sins are cast into the deep sea as far as the east is from the west. That's what the Bible says. I think some of you in this room need to be encouraged just to say, God, I am so sorry. And God is gonna pick you up and he's gonna restore you. If you are in this room though and you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're on the fence. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. Pastor Mike would love to talk with you. He's not afraid of hard questions. He would love to get together with you if it's a, a longer conversation. Come up here and ask Mike anything you wanna ask him. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray for you, anything you may need. And here's the last thing, guys. It's your heads are bad, your eyes are closed. Maybe it's been a while since you've heard this. I don't care how many times you've failed, how many times you've come up short, God loves you. He loves you. The Bible says that God loved us so much that he gave his only son that whoever will just believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. All the way around this room, there is communion. That represents the fact that God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us, to resurrect us. And to send His Holy Spirit to comfort us and counsel us until Jesus comes back for us. We have communion. All of you are welcome to take communion today, but you have to ask Jesus to forgive you. Today is a good day. Listen to me. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Listen to me. Today is a good day to shed that garbage. Today is a good day to let it go. Today is a good day to leave this place forgiven. It's a good day to do that. Why would you leave this place with the spiritual baggage that you walked in here with? Don't do it. God is quick to forgive. He's quick to show mercy. He's quick to love us and to help us, but we've gotta submit. We've gotta be humble. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church. God, I love this church. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that may deal with self-worth people in this room who beat themselves up when they make a mistake, people, Lord, who, 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 who do feel like failures or feel like they're nothing, God, or that you don't love them. Lord, I pray that you speak to those things, God. I pray, Lord, that you forgive us and dust us off and put us on the right path. and Lord, so we can go out and be salt and light and know who we are in your kingdom, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Bless my friends in this room. We pray all these things, Lord, in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys.